You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8-15. through 15. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Father, we are thankful even for difficult passages. We need them. Uh, So help us, we pray. Fix our eyes now on your Son and help us to understand your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We're back to 1 Timothy. And it is good to be back. It's the first time we've been back to this book since before Thanksgiving, or just right after Thanksgiving. If I haven't met you yet, my, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Church. Uh, it's been a little while since we were in this letter. We, I think it was really good for us to spend four weeks in Romans 8 through Advent. And then uh, taking two weeks, I think, has been helpful for us in setting the table for tonight's sermon, this difficult passage. On the one hand, we've already done much or most of the heavy lifting from this passage or for this passage in the last two weeks. Uh, On the other hand, since last Sunday, since the last time we were in this room together, uh, Gillette went and released a new commercial. Uh, And it's like I've had three or four separate conversations with three or four of you over coffees and lunches uh, this week. One of you hates that commercial because you think it's just uh, two minutes of Gillette scolding men, uh, giving them very little to strive for other than basically just not being a Neanderthal uh, while minimizing things that can actually be genuinely masculine and helpful for men and women. Uh, One of you appreciated this commercial, some parts of it, and hated other parts. One of you loved the commercial, uh, a victim yourself of the very kind of toxic masculinity, toxic masculinity that Jeff, Gillette was trying to confront, and you were thinking, yes, finally, and as many avenues and as many voices that will speak these kinds of things, yes, because I have been a victim for far too long. And this is all in the last six days since we've been in this room together. This conversation is perhaps one of the most hot-button and controversial topics that we could possibly undergo together. But I think for that reason, probably the most important reasons why we do it. And it seems to only add fuel to the fire when in every sentence that you just heard Nena read from Paul in 1 Timothy 2, he seemingly uh, just is more and more sexist and oppressive and sensitive and chauvinistic, just mansplaining. I'm hopeful, though, that beginning two weeks ago, as a result of tonight, and then throughout the rest of this letter, that we can actually begin to believe that, as one writer says, that while the church has much to be ashamed of the way it has treated women, there is no reason to be ashamed about what God has said about women in his word. 
if in the Gospels, in the teaching ministry of Jesus, Jesus wrote, might we say, the sheet music to a beautiful symphony. Jesus then released the apostles with a job to go around and teach people how to play the oboe and the viola. And then how to, with the delegated authority of Christ, the apostles, Paul included, then to teach people how to actually read sheet music and then play a beautiful symphony together underneath Jesus, the ongoing conductor, how to live out the implications of life together in the kingdom as the church. Paul's concerns in this letter are for the purity of the gospel, that is, that the sheet music is actually transmitted correctly and that it is given in its intended beauty, as well as his second concern for the purity of the church, that the music is actually played to highlight the gospel's intended beauty, that it is played in tune. When this particular Ephesian symphonic orchestra would get together week to week on Sundays on the Lord's Day, they were perhaps playing something that resembled the music that Jesus wrote and intended, but they were doing so so horribly out of tune that no one would want to listen to it. And so after addressing the purity of the gospel for a chapter and a half, Paul then turns his attention to the gathered worship. When this particular church would sit down to play their instruments together, and as he turns his attention to their gathered worship, he'll then write one of the most controversial paragraphs in the Bible. Our roadmap for tonight may not be as clear as some of the headings and questions that we asked together the past couple of weeks, uh, but tonight we're going to look at two halves of this section that are admittedly very imbalanced. There are callings of men and then callings of women. But quickly, before we read this short verse for men, I want to tie up a couple of loose ends from Genesis 1 to 3 that we didn't get to in the past two weeks. I think this will be helpful for us. In Genesis 2, we saw God create Adam to work, to keep the garden. God instructs Adam about the tree, how to live under God's authority. And then uh, in creation, God is given a role of authority over the plants and the animals, over all of the garden. And this kind of authority is given to him so that he might beautify the garden. But then God sees Adam and says that it is not good for him to be alone, so he makes a helper suitable for him. He makes Eve. Now, we, in our culture, tend to assign a very negative connotation to the word authority. We tend to think about superiority and inferiority. Someone who has authority will inherently impose his or her will on another. And so words like authority and submission might as well be cuss words in America in 2019. But the biblical concept of authority is opposite to this. The biblical word of authority, while it can carry a very uh, sinful, terrible uh, implication to it, and authority in and of itself is not a bad thing. In fact, it's a positive thing. Like I said, Adam is given authority that he might cultivate beauty, when he is given authority over Eve, he rejoices over her. In fact, through his authority, Adam actually now has the means to which he can bless and serve his wife. And we know that authority can't necessarily and inherently be a bad thing because God has authority over us. Jesus has been given authority over all things. And how does Jesus use his authority? 
for the good of others, for our sake, for God's own glory. All throughout Paul's letters, Jesus doesn't use his authority to please himself, to serve himself, but to serve others, meet our needs for another's good. And yet, as a result of the fall, because of what happens in Genesis 3, men and others who are given authority can tend toward abusing their authority or, on the other end of the spectrum, can tend toward abdicating their authority, giving it away to others. Eve, on the other hand, in Genesis 2, is given the role of helper. And again, this kind of word, helper or submission, these are words that tend to, in our 2019 American culture, have a very, uh, just a negative connotation. It sounds very denigrating. Like, I think some of us can subconsciously kind of think of like my four-year-old Bennett, who has like a plastic hard hat and a plastic hammer. He's like, oh, are you daddy's little helper? If any of you ever think of my wife that way, I will respond with not holy hands. Uh, but the way that at, when the way that word helper is used in the Bible is most often used of God himself. God is my rock, my fortress, my helper. This is not a denigrating thing. Kind of like, like when I'm at the end of my rope, when I am in my time of need, Eve comes in and fills what is lacking in Adam. Similarly, as authority can be like a nails on a chalkboard word for Americans, submission perhaps is even worse. But just as authority inherently is not bad because we know that Jesus uses it for good, we know that submission is not a bad thing because look how Jesus submits. Submission isn't something that is forcefully taken from Jesus, but it is freely given. When in his human nature, in his incarnation, he submits to the will of the Father in order to bring greater glory to God, to bring about his purposes. His submission leads to greater glory in ultimate exaltation. Submission isn't a sign of inferiority or weakness, but it is a sign of strength of freely giving oneself for mutual joy, for mutual flourishing. But just as men will tend to abuse their authority or abdicate, abdicate their authority because of Genesis 3, women will always struggle to understand that biblical submission is actually a show of strength, is actually an adornment of glory and not a sign of weakness. Okay, now let's get to verse 8. I think that loose end will help us in just a moment. 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. Callings of men. This is important, but it is very short and sweet. But don't worry, men. By implication, when we get to uh, male elders next week in chapter 3, there will be plenty more for you next week. But he says in verse 8, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, there is false teaching going on in Ephesus. There is division. And so, after addressing what we ought to pray for in verses 1 through 7 in chapter 2, Paul then confronts the actual prayer, the one who is praying. And what he is actually addressing here is not necessarily just the physical posture of the person that is praying, but the posture of the prayer's heart. In every place, Paul says, presumably in every place that the church is gathering, the local 
house churches or wherever they are, wherever they're meeting together, the men should pray with holy hands, without anger or without quarreling. What Paul is addressing here is the same thing that Jesus did in Matthew 5, where Jesus said, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Paul is confronting a besetting sin that is probably and particularly true of men. Not that it can't be true of women, but generally we men have the capacity to compartmentalize, to walk into this space together, to walk into our worship of God, perhaps going through the motions, perhaps uh, setting aside quarreling, setting aside division, setting aside emotion and anger with other people. But this is not two different things. The worship of God and anger with people who that we are Christians with, especially when we are church members together with, these are not two different things. The way that the beauty of the gospel and the mission of the church will actually go forward is to pray with holy hands in unity with one another. Our hands signifying externally what is true internally. Men can tend towards arguing first and then thinking about it later. I teach logic to 7th and 8th graders at a classical school here in town, and from week one, at the beginning of the fall semester, I tell them that it is very, very possible, especially given these tools that I'm about to teach you for the next year, it is very, perhaps even likely, that you can win the argument and lose the person. You can be right about something in an utterly sinful manner. You can be right in such a, such a way to, that you are disconnecting the thing that you are talking about from your actual life, which we might call hypocrisy. Or you can be right while trampling on the dignity of another person, which we might call arrogance or condemnation. And so here are a few callings for men in the corporate gathering of the church. As we, get into the, as we got into this in the last two weeks, and as we'll continue in a moment, uh, first, men are called toward a pattern of leader, leadership. Throughout the centuries, some have arrived at the conclusion, coupled with later verses in this paragraph, that women should not pray in the gathered worship of the church. Paul says, men should pray with holy hands. Implication, women should not. The male pattern of leadership does not mean that they have the exclusive right of corporate prayer, though. Karen Avery rightly prayed for our church this evening. More on that in a moment. But men are called to lead the church with holy hands, external and internal holiness uh, in leading the church. And now, a second calling that God has on every man is to live a holy life. Again, what Paul is talking about here is not necessarily just physical posture, but the heart. That when a man prays, he can lift his hands to God with a chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, with a clear conscience, with a sincere faith. Not something that sounds good, but he, perhaps, and others know is just hypocritical blustering. that he relies on God, that he trusts him in prayer, and that this is a leadership quality, is a sign of godly, humble masculinity. And a final God, a calling that God has for some men is to be an elder or a pastor. 
God has reserved this role for men, but not every man, but for qualified men. So, men of Christ Church, is your life being marked increasingly so throughout the years by an initiative of sacrifice as a desire to serve and to bless, putting to death your own desires for the flourishing of others, leading our community in prayer and in holiness. There's more to say on that next week. Now, it sure seems that Paul is just like about as hard as anyone could possibly imagine just mansplaining here. Like he says, uh, I would like you to pray men with holy hands and pursue unity. And women, I would like you to reconsider your wardrobe for you to keep your mouth shut. Uh, And if that makes you feel bad, well, cheer up. You can go have a bunch of babies. Uh, That's what it sounds like. But this is absolutely not what Paul is prescribing here. He turns his attention from men, and now he has several callings for women as well. So let's turn our attention now to the women in verse 9, with a few callings of women. A first calling, women are also called toward holy lives. Verse 9, likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So here's what's going on. We know that there are lots of wealthy people in Ephesus. Paul will address them in chapter 6. And evidently, in the assembled church gathering, many of these wealthy women were flaunting their wealth, were perhaps even showing up in the fashions of Rome. New hairstyles would show up on Roman coins and would be circulated throughout the empire featuring women with braided, mounded up hairdos, like think like high school prom hairdos, right? Uh, And these were becoming popular all over the empire. The wealthy Christian women of the city are spending an inordinate amount of time, money, and energy toward their appearance in order to flaunt their status and perhaps to even signal their sexual availability. And just like what shows up in Hollywood or on people.com might initially be shocking to us, but then eventually will trickle its way down into our homes, convincing so many that if I either, one, want to show my status, or two, get any kind of attention, I must dress in the way that has been shown to me on TV or in a magazine, well, the same trickle-down effect is spreading in our homes and throughout the Roman Empire in the first century. What Paul is doing is not confronting or prescribing a dress code. He is confronting the heart. In the same way that he addressed externally the hands of men, he is now confronting externally the hair and the jewelry of women. The heart of a woman he's confronting here, that women, your value is not in your appearance. To think otherwise denigrates your own identity as a daughter of the Most High God. So Paul tells the women to spend their time, to spend their energy and money on that which is truly beautiful, that of good works, which preserves the dignity of women and it advances the gospel. The men are trying to draw attention to themselves by winning arguments and women are trying to draw attention to themselves by the way they dress. Paul is telling them both to draw attention to a great and beautiful God. 
Women are to live holy lives, just like the men. And this is not to say that many men need also to hear this uh, confrontation as well. Modesty can be an issue for men and women both. Some men love to shop and some women hate to shop. But Paul is addressing common generalities. I think we're all grateful for our brother and sister Trevor and Tolly who took out Mason a week or two ago to buy some new clothes. Yeah, we're all thankful. Yeah, can I get an amen? Yeah, because (laughs) apart from their care, Mason wouldn't care about his clothes or his external appearance. Mason's in Denver this week, and maybe he won't listen to the podcast. We'll just count on that. And so, ladies, braiding your hair is not a way today to necessarily draw undue attention to yourselves. Uh, wearing a certain kind of jewelry is not, to, not necessarily a way to signal to others your sexual availability. And so this verse does not carry a one-to-one cross-cultural application for you today. Many of you just breathed out a sigh of relief. And Paul is not telling you that you have to always be out of style. Owning jewelry or nice clothes is not sinful, but a question to consider is that, do I have an unhealthy desire to impress others or gain attention by my outward appearance? This is a question for all of us. If you really want to become beautiful to God, and if you want to be beautiful to godly men who have holy hands and a holy heart, Adorn yourself with what is proper for men, for women who profess godliness, good works. And so just as men particularly ought to reconcile and pursue unity before they come to the gathered worship service of the church, women, beginning around 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, do you spend more time in front of the mirror preparing your appearance or do you spend more time preparing your heart? So God calls women to be holy, externally and internally. Second, God calls women to be disciples. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissive. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Here's the thing. Verse 11 would have been just as controversial in Paul's day when he wrote this sentence as it is today. But the controversial part for Paul's original audience would have been the first half and not the second, that women were to learn at all. In Greco-Roman culture and even in Jewish culture of the day, women were considered intellectually second class. We read in the Talmud, that is not the the inspired Old Testament scriptures, but just what some rabbis had written on the side. They wrote, it would be better for the words of the Torah, Torah to be burned then they should be entrusted to a woman. This is the culture in which Paul is writing and confronting. To teach women theology then, in every circle except for a Christian one, would be an extraordinary waste of time. But with God, who professed a time in Joel 2, where men and women would know and understand God and would pray and prophesy about him, with Jesus, who dignified his many female disciples and students that were following him, Jesus, who commended Mary for sitting and listening to him rather than Martha, who perhaps wasn't just a busybody, but perhaps didn't think it was appropriate for her to sit at Jesus' feet because that was something for the men to do. And with Paul, who assumes in 1 Corinthians 11 that men and women will both pray and prophesy in the gathered worship of the church. 
The whole of the Bible is encouraging and commending feminine pursuits of the knowledge of God, of deep theology, of doctrine, of the scriptures. And here in 1 Timothy 2.12, women learning is not only not a waste of time, it's a requirement. Women are called to be disciples, always learning and growing in their knowledge of God and of the scriptures. But she is to do it quietly and with all submission. Now maybe you have a translation or you thought you remembered this verse uh, saying, let a woman, woman learn in silence. But that is not what Paul says. The meaning of this Greek word carries less of a meaning having to do with volume of loudness or quietness or all the way loud or all the way quiet, but more of a meaning of respectful and full attention. Like an edge of your seat wrapped uh, attention, thinking about attentiveness. Again, likely emphasizing a positive aspect not a checked out, but because theology is for the men of this church, so I don't have to pay attention, but that I will learn in quietness and submissiveness at the edge of my seat. In other words, just like Mary, Mary and Martha. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet in the tradition of learning from a great rabbi. She is listening rather than talking. She is in a willing place of humble and respectful attention. Submission to Jesus' teaching authority. In other words, she learned quietly and with all submission. Now here's the thing. While Mary and all women are called to learn quietly in all submission, that doesn't mean that the dudes get to be loud and unsubmissive. This is a way, this is the way that all of God's people ought to learn in a gathered worship service. Whenever I visit other churches or whenever Clint or one of our other pastors or another preacher from another church joins us and preaches here at this church, it is my goal and aim to listen and to learn quietly and with all submission. When the preacher is seeking to make the aim of the text, the aim of his sermon, there is a very real sense in which we are sitting at the feet of Jesus. We are sitting under his word. Now, please don't hear me say that I am Jesus or everything that I'm ever going to say up here is always going to be perfect and clear and never not unhelpful. Anytime each of us listens to a sermon, we ought to be like the Bereans checking the scriptures to make sure that they are, what the preacher is saying is actually in accordance with the scriptures. But this time, each Sunday, is a just important and invaluable time to together hear from God's word together, to hear from God himself. Now, I hate that I would even have to mention this, but I need to mention this. Because of the way that husbands can abuse their authority, and because of the way that some particularly wicked husbands will use this paragraph as not only an excuse to do whatever they want, not only an excuse to emotionally and even physically abuse their wives or their children, but then even using verses like these to demand that their wives remain silent about it. This is wickedness. Karen prayed for you earlier. And we are making plans this week on how to, as a church, become a safer place for women to 
feel more comfortable in sharing experiences of abuse, both past or even present. But women and even children who are here tonight, I want you to hear me say, if there is a man in your life who is abusing you, it is not God's will for you to remain silent, but to speak. Your full submission is not only not required to that man, but you should tell someone immediately. Tonight even, do not put yourself in one more evening tonight where you are in physical danger. Along with the pastors who are standing up front at the end of every service here on Sunday, our sister Karen will be uh, standing up front tonight. If you need someone to talk to, Perhaps if you need to talk to someone later in the week, she or many others would be glad to hear and to help you think and making next steps forward. Now, Paul specifically addresses all women to be quiet in attentive submission because he is clear that the authoritative teaching ministry of the gathered church is a role reserved for male pastors. And yet... Nowhere should we come to the conclusion that women should never teach. We might think of Colossians 3.16, where Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you, plural, the church, richly, teaching all of you and admonishing one another in all wisdom. We might think of Priscilla, who with her husband, Apollos, or her husband invited Apollos into their home in Acts 18. And we read that they together explained to Apollos the way of God more accurately, even though we read that Apollos was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Women are to teach in all sorts of contexts in the life of the church. But the authoritative proclamation of God's word in the context of gathered worship is a role for male pastors, is a role, as we saw last week, for the fathers of the church. They are to perform fatherly roles of instruction, fatherly roles of keeping and guarding the doctrine of the church. And it is not appropriate for the mothers and the daughters of the church to take on the role of a father. Now, while complementarians will agree that male elders bear the responsibility of the teaching ministry, the authoritative preaching ministry of the church, there is, in my opinion, room for disagreement on the implications on the trickle-down implications for what this means outside of this room where we gather together on Sundays. Some folks would say that it's fine for women to teach young boys in the context of a children's ministry, but when they reach the age of puberty or some other line of demarcation, it would now be inappropriate for, he, for she to teach these now young men. But I've become persuaded and actually helped by this in our thinking uh, by other well-known complementarians like Philip Ryken or Kent Hughes or Brian Chappell as well as others like Jen Wilkin and Mary Cassian and Hannah Anderson and others that teaching, the kind of teaching that Paul is prohibiting here is not the kind of exercise, exercising authority teaching when it's outside of this room. What Paul is prohibiting is the kind of um, authoritative, public, doctrinal instruction of the pastors of a church. 
So some might say that there are like concentric circles out. It's like very easy to think through what the implications for this verse are in this room, but then it gets a little bit more difficult in a Sunday school class or in a community group or whatever it may be. But I, along with your other pastors, now agree with Brian Chapel, who says, personally, I am comfortable with a woman teaching an adult Sunday school class, provided that the teaching is periodic and under the authority of the elders. I would not be comfortable with a woman having her own permanent class because such permanence would tend to foster an elder-like authoritativeness. So, uh, I think maybe some of you know this or not, we're in April or so, we're gonna begin what we're gonna call core classes, which is, if you've been in the church uh, for too long, perhaps this might be what a Sunday school class is to you. Uh, For an hour or so before our service, we're gonna have six to 12 week-ish classes. And don't be surprised if once or twice or a few times a year we invite one of our incredible ladies to teach that class. Come and benefit from her teaching. So, now I think that I have upset everyone in the room. Uh, uh, Some of you who think that we are trying to uphold the conservative patriarchy and some of you who think that we have now gone full liberal feminist. And that's okay. Anyway, uh, so women are called to holiness and they are called to be disciples. And lastly, women are called to embrace God's good design for gender. Maybe earlier you were thinking, now wait a minute. If women today are not prohibited from braiding their hair or wearing jewelry because that was a cultural issue that existed in first century Turkey that doesn't now clearly exist in our culture, How are we to say that women being pastors isn't culturally bound in specific also? Well, in addition to the many other reasons that I gave you last week, Paul then continues in verse 13. And what is the reason in verse 13 that Paul does not permit a woman to teach in an authoritative role of the pastor? Well, verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So while some have used this verse to say that women are particularly gullible, they can't be trusted in guarding the doctrine of the church, how are the male elders in Ephesus doing? Right? Like, we've just gotten through Paul handing them over to Satan because they have mishandled pure doctrine so badly. It wouldn't take us very long to come up with a really long list in church history of males doing very, very, a very poor job of keeping and preserving right and sound doctrine and theology. It seems like there isn't a particular gullibility that is true of women than it isn't true of men. So what Paul is doing here is a pretty straightforward argument. He's leaning on the biblical understanding and the ancient custom and tradition that the firstborn son carries the primary responsibility of the family. The eldest son becomes the the head of the household. Think about it. God knew that he was going to make Adam and Eve. He wasn't later surprised that Adam was alone. He knew that he would later create her. It was not some chronological accident that God happened to create the male before the female. And it's also true that he didn't create them at the same time. There is, a, there is an order to this. 
So in grounding his argument the way he does, Paul's command here goes beyond a particular first century Turkish context, and instead it gets applied to humanity. And so husbands in marriage and men, the fathers of the local church, the pastors, they hold the place of the spiritual responsibility for the family and for the church. The point is not that Eve was deceived, and that's like a bummer of a punishment for all subsequent women who would follow after her. Like, if only Adam would have been deceived, well, now Paul would be banning male pastors and making them all female. That's not what's going on here. The point is that Adam was not deceived. One commentator says, unlike Eve, Adam knew full well what he was doing when he ate the forbidden fruit. The woman fell partly because Satan blinded her to the true nature of sin, but the man sinned with his eyes wide open. Adam's willful disobedience hardly commends him and his male sons for pastoral ministry. But it does indicate something important for us about God's plan for the family and for the church. That men would lead and protect their families and that God will hold men responsible Paul's clear in Romans 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15 that sin entered the world not through the deception of Eve, but through the willful disobedience of Adam. Now, wives, this does not mean that you get a free pass to go do whatever you want because God's not going to hold you accountable. He's going to hold your husband accountable for your sin. That's not what this is about. But husbands, again, you are held responsible for cultivating the morale of your family. The pastors of this church are responsible for cultivating the morale of leading in godliness, of taking initiative, not of abusing or abdicating authority, but in dying to themselves, using their authority as a means to serve and to bless. Now, I've had several of you who are not married come up to me in the past week, or I've heard about these conversations throughout the week, and you're like, how does this have anything to do with me if I'm not married, if I'm a single person? Does any of this carry any weight in my life? Well, yes and no. Like I said last week, single dudes, unless you become a husband, unless you get married or you become a pastor of a church, you do not carry any inherent authority in your little bag. There's nothing in your maleness that gives you authority unless you are given to given it by God in marriage or in eldership and single ladies the only men that you should submit to are your pastors just as all of us submit to our pastors as I submit to the other three pastors but these principles and patterns of authority and submission should be finding their way into practical outworkings even to our lives as single people College dudes, young men, young boys, if authority is given to you, perhaps one day later in your life to serve and to bless, are you, are you growing into that? Are you growing in patterns of sacrifice and of blessing and serving? Are you becoming the kind of man that the godliest woman that you could possibly imagine would actually want to marry? Gals, are, are you growing in holiness? Are you growing in you becoming a disciple more and more of Jesus? 
Are you beginning to love more and more God's good design for gender rather than begrudging him for it? Are you becoming the kind of gal that the godliest guy that you could possibly imagine would actually want to marry? Even if you end up not getting married, ever. Remember, singleness in creation before the fall is non-existent. Singleness in the Old Testament is uncommon and generally undesirable. Singleness in the New Testament is advantageous for kingdom ministry. Singleness in the final state is universal. It is where we are all headed. Singleness is actually the goal to which we are pointing as we are fully wedded to Christ. We'll have much more to say about singleness, about marriage, about the family of God as we go through this letter, so, but hang in there, hang in there for the time. But now, speaking of singleness and marriage and now children, perhaps the strangest verse in this whole paragraph, but which perhaps most clearly and helpfully sums up what Paul's saying here, sums up how women are called to embrace God's good design for gender. Verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. We absolutely know that Paul cannot mean saved in like a final salvific, you get to be with God and saved from sin and hell kind of a way, right? This would be antithetical to Paul's entire theology, even the theology of this letter in which he's writing. And we also know that he can't mean that women will be safe through childbearing, as many have argued throughout the centuries. The history of Christian women is far too long and far too sad of death and childbirth. Some argue that this is the Genesis 3.15 promise of the childbirth, the promise where God comes to Eve the birth of, uh, he says to her that the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. And so this, right here, what Paul is doing here, this is a Jesus verse, which would be super convenient for me as we're wrapping up this sermon and we're about to move to the Lord's table. But that would be a really, really obscure and awkward way for Paul to explain this and to make his point. So I agree, again, with Brian Chappell, who says, most likely... Paul references childbearing because it is a universal example of the God-given given difference in the roles of men and women. Meaning, men do not give birth. Women, in every culture, generally do. So when Paul says women will be saved through childbearing, he means that by not seeking a man's role, that is, and this is my voice now, that is, not seeking the role of the father of the church, or not seeking in the nuclear family or, uh, the role of a father or a man's role, by not seeking to become that, women will more likely remain in the heart attitude that invites salvation and its attendant blessings. That's really good. In other words, entrusting in God's wisdom, his goodness, his provision, in powerful humility, freely offering her submission most clearly to God, a woman will find herself in a posture of heart that will not only fill and bring radiant glory to herself and to God, but will also put her in the place to be most useful and helpful to her family and to her church. 
the kind of heart that is most conducive to producing extraordinary fruit of the Spirit, like the kinds he mentions, faith and love and holiness and self-control. The woman who embraces and just glories in the way that God has made her different from men and is pleased by that, is given great joy by that. This passage is not about male or female superiority. This passage is not about giftings or about particular suitabilities for family or church life. Church and family leadership is not about power. All of this, all of this, the, the pure doctrine, the right sheet music, and the pure church, the ability to play that music in tune with one another is about drawing attention to a great, great God. Our culture has lost its way. It has no idea what to think about these things. It does not know what way is right and wrong. It is starving for clarity and it is just making up more moral norms as it goes. It turns to a razor company to be its shepherd in thinking about gender. That's crazy. So it would be really easy to ignore texts like these or perhaps excuse and explain them away. But I'm convinced that a full embrace of these principles, a full wholeheartedness of the outworkings, the embrace of the outworkings of God's design for gender may just turn out to be one of the most persuasive arguments for the gospel that we have. Our church, our marriages, as they are continually being sanctified, how we as men and women, as members of this church, interact with one another, honor one another, care for one another, sacrifice for one another. All of this may just be like the most countercultural thing that we actually have to offer. Maybe so. Maybe so. We've got a lot more to think through. This is, not, this is not the end of gender. This is not the end of the family of God. This is not an isolated paragraph. Uh, in the context of this letter. So let's keep thinking through it together. Let's ask that God would give us help. Father, we pray that you would have mercy on our marriages, many of which are struggling, even right now, even tonight. Show yourself mighty and powerful and show us grace and mercy. Help us husbands to use our authority to serve and to bless. Help our wives to understand submission as a show of strength and adornment of glory. Help us, the family of God, no matter our age, no matter our gender, no matter if we are married, no matter if we have children, help us to become more and more one flesh together. What was separate, you have now unified into one body, one church, united to you, Lord Jesus, our bridegroom and our king. Help us to look and long for your coming, King Jesus, and help us to live holy lives as we wait. In your name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.